Well, let's remain standing and let's take our Bibles out. And we're going to open them this morning to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 this morning as we continue working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Rome and through the will of God to the church at Reading as well. We'll read verses 13 through the end of the chapter this morning. Follow along. This is God speaking to us through the Apostle Paul this morning. Let's give heed to these words. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So no, now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we... Pray for your illumining grace this morning as we come to this passage. We ask, Lord, that your word as it is preached would be preached with clarity, with understanding, and that you would use it to further our knowledge of you and our love for you and our understanding of the great, great salvation that you have given to us so freely through Christ. We ask that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This morning we get... Where's Micah? There he is. We get a a Star Wars introduction this morning. I know Micah would especially like that. Orbiting the forest moon of Endor in the uh, Galactic Empire's command ship, Luke Skywalker repeatedly and almost at the cost of his life hung tenaciously to an assertion, his assertion, that the evil Darth Vader, who is also his father, uh, spoiler alert, if you don't know that by now, That his father, Darth Vader, was not wholly evil, but that there was still some good in him. 
And, and, he, and Luke even told him on several occasions, I feel the conflict in you. And though Darth Vader confidently asserted there is no conflict, well, yeah, as it turned out, there was conflict. And the resolution of that conflict made for one of the most unexpected and anticipated moments in cinematic history. And we could also note that the last trilogy, at least so far, in that, fans somewhat anticlimactically learned that, yeah, there was also similar conflict in Darth Vader's grandson, Kylo Ren. Uh, lots of conflict in those movies. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about conflict, though we're going to look at a different kind of conflict, a real conflict that affects real people, Christian people, you and me and the Apostle Paul. Not an undercurrent of, of good in an evil, caped, fallen Jedi Knight, but conflict caused by a tendency in us toward evil. Um, in fallen sinners, sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we suffer with conflict. And it does us no good to say there is no conflict because we all know that there is. As we come to the second half of, of Romans 7, we are coming to what is one of the most, well, probably one of the most well-known, but certainly one of the most debated sections of Romans. Consequently, this is one of the most difficult passages in the book of Romans, certainly, in the New Testament, certainly. This, there, there are ministers, teachers who come to this passage and just lay it out there um, as if it's easy to understand. And I put to you that, that men who do that are either just glossing over the difficulties or they have not looked at the passage and studied it. This is a hard passage. And, of course, the difficulty in it surrounds the question of Paul's reference, his frame of reference, as he writes. Is he, in these words that we read this morning, as some say, and by the way, there are good, this wouldn't be difficult, if there, or there would not be good arguments for this if it were not difficult. And there are good arguments for both of the views of this passage, the two main views. But is Paul speaking and writing here as an unregenerate person, or as a regenerate person? Is he reflecting on his experience before his conversion, either as a practicing Jew or as just a pagan? Or is he thinking about himself and is he writing about himself as a believer? And if it's as a believer, is he writing about himself as a, early in his life, as an immature, a new believer? Or is he writing about himself um, as, as he writes the book of Romans as a fully uh, mature Christian with a, a good grasp on not just his theology but also his, his conduct. Both views, it has to be admitted, both views have difficulties, serious difficulties in this text. Um, you know, talk about the conflict that we're going to talk about here, there is conflict in just preaching this passage, in studying this passage. Because like I say, both views have difficulties. If Paul is writing as a believer, 
We have difficulties with a couple of phrases in here, especially as he refers to himself in verse 14 as being sold under sin, and later in verse 23 as him being made a captive to the law of sin. After all, haven't we just been looking in chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the fact that we are not, we are not dead, that we are dead to sin? That we are not sold under sin any longer? That we are not captive to the law of sin? That we are freed from that? Certainly that's true. Um, It it certainly, at first glance at least, uh, tends to make us think that there is a contradiction if Paul is writing as as a believer. On the other hand, if he is writing about himself before his conversion as an unbeliever, then one has to answer these facts that are in the text. First, that, that his, his recognition of the law as spiritual and himself as fleshly. That's not something that an unbeliever could say. Uh, his, the general angst that arises from the, the disjoint between his desire and his actions, his desire to do good, that is, and his frustration in not doing it, his recognition that nothing good dwells within me. The fact that he delights in the law of God, certainly something that a non-believer could never say. Uh, that, that it is an unwelcome enemy who makes him captive to the law of sin. The recognition of his desire to be rescued from this body of death. His joy in Christ specifically as he refers to him as Christ, our Lord. And the disjunct between his true self and the unwelcome sin that dwells in his members. So there are difficulties on both both sides. But for that list of reasons that I just gave, I believe that the evidence is stronger for the view that Paul is writing about his post-conversion experience. He is writing as a Christian, reflecting on the Christian life and the Christian's struggles. He is writing about the Christian's conflict. One more um, argument for the fact that this is Paul writing about himself after his conversion it is the very simple fact that there is in beginning especially in verse 14 a shift of perspective as Paul shifts from speaking in the first person singular in the past tense as he had been doing to now to the first person singular in the present tense that he uses throughout these verses that we're looking at this morning. But the subject is still, still has to do with the relation of God's law, with the purpose of God's law, with, with how God's law works in the believers. And the, the topic is the existence of the conflict that that law brings within the life of a believer. And Paul uses his own experience as the model for what all Christians experience. For, for those of us who have received such a great salvation, who have, by God's grace, been freed from sin and have been freed from the law, who have been united to Christ, who have a share in the death and the life and the resurrection uh, of Jesus, who have the Holy Spirit given to them, who takes up residence in them and, and works full orbs salvation in them, 
The question then is, how can it be that we should struggle with sin and struggle with it to the point that we do? People who preach messages calling on people to come to the Lord and say, come to Christ and everything will be great, everything will be easy, you'll just live on a mountaintop the whole time. Those people either have never become Christians or are trying to sell people a bill of goods. The Christian life is hard. Jesus, it's been said, bids us to come and die daily. And we do, and we struggle with sin. Paul's going to talk about that here. And as we've come to expect here in this section, uh, Paul begins with a question that arises from a previous statement. He strongly uh, denies that or answers that question with a denial. He answers the question briefly, and then he spends the rest of the, verse, or the, rest of the verses in the passage explaining and expanding on that. The question again comes in verse 13. And you see um, that there's a very close connection, if you remember back to last week, with what he was talking about last week. In verse 13, he says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? That previous passage, remember, that we saw last week was um, an apologetic or a defense for the goodness of God's law, explaining that it was not the law that, that does so much damage in us, but it is sin that takes advantage of the law, deceiving us through the commandment, stirring up our rebellious nature to disobey God's law. And he concluded... In verse 12, with the statement, you see it there, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So if the law is good and if sin worked to take advantage of the law and through it to stir up sin in us so that we died, so that we became guilty under the law, then Paul asks here, did that which is good then, that's the law of God, did that bring death to me? Did God's law, which is good, bring death? Well, his answer there in verse 13 that we've seen so often is, by no means. And having said that, he continues by summarizing really what he had spent verses 7 through 12 saying. Verse 13, he says, It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order, he says, that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Again, sin is the culprit, Paul says. That is what brought death, not the law itself. It was sin that caused death. And here in this verse, he he really quite strongly restates the goodness of the law and the function of the law, especially that first use of the law that we talked about last time where the law shows us our sin, it makes sin known to us, it shows us our our failures, it shows us our need for a Savior. The action of sin in us using the good law of God shows and was meant to show, Paul says, and to reveal not just sin but to reveal the sinfulness of sin by giving specific commandments against which we rebel. As we go through life and we, we as non-Christians, and we, we do these things and live this way, then the law comes in and says, well, see, this is a violation of God's law. This is a violation of God's law, and so on and so forth. 
The goodness of the law is the light that reveals the ugliness of sin. In order that, he says, through the commandment, the sin, that sin might become sinful beyond measure. That we might gain the, the idea of the depth of our sin and the tragedy of, a, of our sin and the offense of our sin. But then he comes to verse 14. And that's where the big shift comes as Paul moves to showing the Christian relationship with the law, how it works out its good purposes in us. But also how that also brings to us a, a sort of hideous manifestation of the conflict that exists in each of us. And as he does so, I believe he is signaling here that he is, he's using himself as an example of the experience of all of us. He draws us all into this. If you look at the beginning of verse 14, he, for the one time here, says, We, for we know. You know Roman Christians. You know Reading Christians. I know, Paul says, we all know this. And what is it that we know? Well, he says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. See, here's the source of this conflict. The law is spiritual. The law is good. He repeats that. But I am of the flesh, he says, sold under sin. The law is spiritual. It is of the Holy Spirit. It is from the Holy Spirit. It corresponds to the Holy Spirit. And then the conflict, or the, the, the contrast on the other side, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. That's set as a contrast to it. And he's not just saying there, I have a body, but he means I am human, uh, not only with, with physical, natural weaknesses, but especially with a fallen nature, with a sinful nature, with a life that that contains sin, that continues to sin, and that used to do nothing but sin. And that will be the source of the trouble. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when we come to this phrase at the end of that, that sentence, and he says that he is sold under sin, again, this is part of the greatest struggle with this passage in seeing it as Paul writing as a believer. Because we have seen, as I mentioned earlier, that Christians say or know that God has told us, Paul has taught us, that we are not under sin. Back in chapter 6, in verse 2, well, verse 1, he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers it, By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And now Paul says, here, I am sold under sin. Later in chapter 6, we talked about this idea of slavery. And everybody is a slave, before they are a Christian, is a slave of sin. And afterwards, we are a slave of righteousness. We are a slave of God. And that, that is a, those are mutually exclusive categories. So then when Paul says here, I am of the flesh sold under sin, that sold under sin cannot mean anything else other than a slave to sin. 
So what do we do with that? This is, a, this is one of the, if people are honest as they preach this passage, as they teach this passage, this is a problem. But I think the answer comes through the, the grammar of the original language, and we, we kind of miss it here in English. Because we read it, I am of the flesh, sold under sin, and we, in that comma right there, we want to put an and. But I am of the flesh and sold under sin. But the, uh, but the original, it's a past passive participle, could be translated, I am of the sin, I, mean, I am of the flesh, having been sold under sin. I am of the flesh, I am fleshly, I am struggling with my flesh because of the fact that I have been sold under sin. It is something that has happened, and it has continuing results, and the result is the conflict. The result is the struggle, and he expresses that struggle in verse 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, as strong as the sold under sin statement is, is, a, is a struggle with those who say, as we do, that Paul is regenerate as he writes this, this verse is a problem for the other people who say, no, he's unregenerate because of what he says. This is a strong indicator that this is saved, converted, regenerate Paul speaking. No unbeliever speaks this way. No unbeliever has this in their heart. This is the conflict which exists in a Christian's life. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions. The fact that I sin, and as I'm going to explain it, he says, this is a mystery to me. I just don't get it. I don't understand. And it's not a happy mystery. This is a result of those contrasting realities. God's good spiritual law and my fleshly nature that still has the results of the fact that I used to be a slave to sin. Slaves would often uh, have a tattoo put on them to mark whose owner they were. It's like Paul saying, I- I'm free from that sin, but there's still this mark on me and it causes me to struggle. And the issue, he says, is I don't do what I want to do. I don't do those things that I know please God. I do the opposite. The things that I know do not please God. That is my struggle. I hate those things, but I find myself doing them. But look at the the good that, that comes from that, really, already. This very situation that Paul explains here in verse 15 supports his thesis from verse 13 and earlier, namely that the law is good. Verse 16, he says, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. He loves the law, he wants to do it, but he often fails. Rather, he does what he hates, which are those things which are contrary to God's law, which he loves. So if I do them while not wanting to do them, he says, I agree with the law that it is good. The law directs him. 
a regenerate man, a Christian, and it is his failure to do what it directs him to do and his doing of the opposite that shows that the law is good and that he has a struggle. He does what God's law says he mustn't, what his mind tells him he mustn't, and that is the conflict. How many of you this morning can identify with Paul in that statement? I know I can, with great sadness and with great uh, a modicum of joy, knowing that at, least, that at least in this I am like the Apostle Paul. Sometimes you have to take what you can get. Now in verse 17 then, Paul offers an explanation for the source of this conflict. Look at it. He says, so now it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me. Now, what's he saying here? Is he saying that he was taken over? That he was possessed by some impulse that, such that he could not help but sin, but sort of zombie-like walks into sin and does, does sin? No, he's not saying that. Is he saying that because of this, that, that somehow he, um, or we, are not responsible for our own sin? No, he's not saying that. Notice that he says, it is no longer I who do it. Something's changed. This rebellion and disobedience, my not doing what I want, not what the law tells me to do, but the opposite, is what I used to be. It used to be, yeah, that that was me doing it. But now it is so foreign to me, it is so foreign to who I am in Christ, he says that it's no longer really, really me doing it. That used to be who I was, but no longer. Not since God converted me and regenerated me. It's not who I am. It's not the true me, Paul's saying. It's not the new creation that I am. The free from sin, free from the law, married to Christ, slave of God and righteousness, me. It's not me who is doing this, but it is the sin, he says, that dwells within me. It's not who I am, it's, it's that, to, to use the, what we said last week, to, to that degree he is not, he's not living like what he is. The same is true for us. Our not living like what we are is this conflict here. It's the remaining corruption in us. It's the the old imagery of the corpse of the dead man being strapped to you. It's the crumbs of Adam uh, that are doing what Paul does not want to do. Beloved, we all know that sin remains in us. We all know that we are justified, but not yet sanctified. That we are regenerated, but not yet glorified. God's work in us has begun, but it is not yet completed. We've been rescued from the power of sin to condemn us, but not yet from the presence of sin. And as a result... There is this conflict, this conflict that arises between the time of our salvation and our death. 
That we live in a constant state of conflict. We are new creations in Christ, but there is still remaining corruption in us. The draw of our old life still has an influence on us. Prayerfully, by God's grace, it is a draw that gets weaker and weaker as God takes us along the path of sanctification, but it's always there. We do not like it. Paul did not like it. It is not a welcome thing. The sin that that dwells within me that Paul speaks of does not dwell in us like a house guest that you might have over. Prepare a room. Make it nice. Make sure you've got all the food that that they like to eat and drink. No, it's not that kind of, of, of dwelling. Sin, our indwelling sin, is more like a squatter. It is not there legitimately, and it is very hard to get rid of. Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, dwells in me. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says that the Spirit dwells in us. But here in verse 17 and in verse 20, we see that sin also is there. And that cannot help but cause conflict. This is the conflict of the Christian life. It is not pleasant. It is the source of much sadness, of many pangs, uh, and of much sin. And Paul goes on. In verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Now notice that he says that. Of course, he recognizes that the Spirit dwells in him, as it does in all believers. Again, 1 Corinthians 3.16. But he is speaking about in what he calls my flesh, in my, in my sinful nature that continues to wreak havoc on my desired life of obedience. Nothing good dwells in that. How do I know it? How do I... I know it by experience, he says. I know it by the conflict. Just as he stated it in the verses that we just looked at in verses 14 through 16, he really repeats the same thing here with just a slightly different slant. In verses 14 through 16 that we just looked at, he said, I do what I don't want to do. And now here in verses 18 and 19, he says, I do not do what I want to do. Verses 14 through 16 speak, we could say, of sins of commission, and verses 18 and 19 speak of sins of omission. But again, his conflict, beloved, is our conflict. We have the desire as Christians to do what is right, to obey God's law. By the way, if you don't have that If you don't have that desire, you are not a Christian. Don't let anyone fool you into thinking otherwise. If you have no desire, even an overwhelming desire to follow God's law, to have your will fall in line with His will, if you have no desire to be made like Christ, 
then you are without really the most fundamental evidence of being born again. The desire to please the Lord is in every action is part of what the Spirit gives you when He comes to dwell in you. This is a large part of what Paul is saying with this passage. Right? Without that desire, there would be no conflict. And to have no desire for holiness, no conflict, but just to go along with sin, that's the description of the unconverted person. When the Spirit changes us, He puts in us a desire to do what God calls us to do. And then, when that is found to be a struggle because of the sinfulness that remains in us and continues to fight against us, that's where the conflict is. That is what Paul talks about in Galatians 5.17, where he says, The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And Paul laments that situation. And it's a lamentable situation, beloved. He goes on in verse 18, in the middle of the verse, he says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. And again, as in verses 14 through 16, so here in verses 18 through 20, he ends really with the exact same phrase, that it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is a conflict that will continue throughout our lives. As long as we live as redeemed people in not yet redeemed bodies in a sinful world, we, even the best of us, even Paul, will live with the conflict that he expresses in these verses. Our will is to serve God, but so often we find ourselves serving sin instead. And it grieves us. If it doesn't grieve us, if it doesn't grieve you when you sin, you have a problem. Paul says in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He's sort of summarizing here. He's coming to a conclusion. He says, I find it. I find it to be the case. This is a a discovery, not a doctrine. This is my experience, Paul says. And we can all say, this is our experience too. He says, I find it to be a law. Now, we've talked a lot about the law. Paul has talked about a lot about the law here. And, And almost everywhere it is referred to the moral law of God. Here, it's a word that, that is, can be translated a principle. It's a principle. It's, it's, it's a state of affairs. He's not talking about the law of God here. In fact, he's going to define really what he's talking about here in just a moment. But it's more like a principle. I find this state of affairs to be true in my life. And the state of affairs is just another statement of the conflict of the Christian life that Paul is laying out here. That when I want to do right, he says, evil lies close at hand. You see, our conflict, our difficulty, is not just in the neighborhood. It's not just in the house, but it is close at hand. It is even at the door. Temptation is ever present with us. 
James says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's right there. It's ready. In verses 22 and 23, we get another presentation or another statement of this. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now this is one of the strongest statements, arguments, that Paul is speaking as and representing genuine, regenerate believers. I delight in the law of God. A non-believer cannot say that. In fact, as Jim read this morning, the psalmist starts off the Psalms, the book of Psalms, and the first song by saying, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the blessed man. And Paul says, that's me. I delight in the law of God. Not a statement that an unbeliever could make or would make. They hate God. They hate His Word. It presents them as accountable to God. It presents them as apart from God. It presents them as doomed in their current state, apart from God, separated from Christ. But Paul, the Christian, even the conflicted believer says, I delight in God's law. As the psalmist also said, Oh, how I love thy law. As, they say, as he says in other places in the, in the Psalms, I delight greatly in your commandments. That's the heart of the Christian. That's the mind of the Christian. But again comes the conflict, the inconsistency, the struggle. But I see in my members another law, And there again, it's principle, another principle, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Even while delighting in God's law, there is this other law, this other principle at work, a conflicting principle, a a principle, a law that he identifies at the end of the verse as the law of sin. It is there as well. In my members, that is in my flesh, working through my body, this body of death, as he'll call it in the next verse. Not the body itself. Paul's not talking about the material flesh. That's Gnosticism to say that, that, that flesh is sinful and it denies the goodness of God's creation and as a bearer of the image of God. The flesh is not inherently evil, but sin works in it. It works through it. That's what he's talked about in verses in chapter 6 and 7 so far. Our body is like a dog. And when sin says, let's go for a ride, it jumps right in. And this law, Paul says, is continually waging war, a very vivid description, and and one of the many places that Paul uh, draws from the, the world of the military. Paul likes this kind of imagery. 
He says, this law is continually waging war against the law of my mind that delights in the law of God and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Though sin is defeated, though we have died to sin, as we mentioned in chapter 6, verse 2, it seems at times that it has not died to us. It continues to harass us. It continues to seek our harm. It refuses to stop fighting. Sin is like Hiro Onoda, the Japanese intelligence officer who famously stayed on his post for 29 years after World War II ended, not knowing or not believing that the war was over, that his side had lost the war. Sin is a defeated foe, but it hangs around and it seeks to cause us trouble. And again, this is the reality. This is the strength of the conflict of what we call the already and the not yet. We are already free from the power and the guilt of sin, but we are not yet free from its presence and from its persistence. And it wages war against our mind, the sin does. Our mind which delights in the law of God. And it uses the law, as we saw, and uses our members to make us as much as it can captive again to the law of sin from which we have been definitively freed by the work of Christ. And it enlists everything in this world to contribute to that effort, doesn't it? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life. The world brings all of that in and seeks to destroy us, to resolve the conflict in us by causing us to give in. Beloved, we must not give in. We must not let the conflict dissolve into our giving ourselves back to sin again. Paul says, now that you have been set free from sin, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. He said, don't give yourselves over to sin. And as he repeats this over and over and builds this up and builds this up. Finally, he comes to verse 24 and finally cries out from his own conflicted heart, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The more we progress in our Christian life and in our Christian faith, the more we recognize our sinfulness, the more sensitive our consciences become to it. And Paul says, wretched man, a very strong word, wretched man that I am. Now at the end of verse 25 the very end of our passage this morning, Paul summarizes all of this that he's been talking about, saying one more time, the experience of Paul, the experience of you and I is summarized here in the expression of this ongoing conflict. He says, 
So then I myself serve the law of God. Notice he says, I myself. There's another, another restatement of that idea that, that the real me, the redeemed me, the new creation that I am with Christ, who I really am, serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. That is the conflict of the Christian life. We serve God. Our, our law, our mind says, oh, how I love your law. But with our flesh, empowered by the sinful nature that still clings to us so closely, we serve the law of sin. And that's the conflict. We as Christians say, oh, how I love your law, but oh, how I hate my sin. And we call out at times, as Paul calls out here, what will we do? Who can help us? How do we expect to be fully and finally and fundamentally through with this conflict? From this dead to sin, yet sin-producing body. There is conflict in us. We can feel it. But what can we do about it? Well, of course, the answer comes quickly. It comes as a grand relief to us, to the conflict in our lives. And Paul expresses the answer in verse 25, first with thanksgiving. He says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to the Lord our God who is gracious and who has saved us. Our rescue from this, your rescue from this, Christian, Paul's rescue from this is from God. And, he says, it is through Jesus your Lord. That is the rescue. Just as our forgiveness, just as our, our death to sin, just as our death to the law is all through Christ, so the, the resolution to our struggle is in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Paul echoes this, where he says, Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not our own victory. He gives us victory through Christ, through Christ's victory. And with that verse, in fact, comes an encouragement. Because that is true, Paul says, Therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. It is God through Christ who has redeemed you, Christian, from all condemnation, and it is He through Christ who will finally deliver you from the conflict, who will deliver you safe on that last day. So what do we do about this struggle, Christian? Well, we trust in God first. Paul says, thanks be to God. Trust God. Secondly, we trust in God's Son. As Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has borne the penalty for that rebellion that remains in us. The sin that lies so close at hand. And then thirdly, we trust in God's promise. We trust in His Word. That He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And so we fight on. Beloved, 
We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It is to full and complete purification and sanctification that you have been destined, predestined, chosen, elected. We're up to our necks in sin, Christian. But praise God, we are over our heads in God's grace. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So let us continue to fight the good fight with the divine resources that God has given to us in his word and trust in what Paul wrote at the end of Romans 8. We haven't got there yet, but listen to this. And with this we close. He says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are conquerors of all these things through you who have loved us, through Christ who has loved us, who has given himself for us. And Lord, we confess with the Apostle Paul that we don't understand what we do at times. We know, even as the Apostle said, that we love your law, that we delight in it in our inner being. But like Paul, we see that other law waging war against us. And we know, Lord, that this is our lot until we are finally with you. We pray that you would help us to trust you. We pray that you would give us the resources through your word and through your spirit to fight the good fight. And that we would rest in Christ who has fought the good fight for us. And we look forward to that time when this conflict that remains in us will be done away with as we are fully and finally, eternally perfected in the last day. We ask this in his name. Amen.